the biggest debate that we've had over the last two weeks really doesn't even involve a political figure, not even a hot-button political topic. But instead, the biggest debate that our nation has faced over the last two weeks, I believe, is the question, has LeBron James surpassed Michael Jordan as the greatest player to ever play the game? Right? And that's an important question we've got to answer. In the last couple of weeks, we've seen that LeBron James actually surpassed Michael Jordan in scoring more points than he did. But however, it took him um, a few more games than it took Michael Jordan to get those number of points. We also know that LeBron James has been the lead scorer one season, where Michael Jordan has been the lead scorer 11 different seasons. Now listen, whoever you think is better, Michael Jordan or LeBron James, here's, here's the truth. You can find the facts to make it fit whatever you want it to say, okay? And the answer to that question, it really is trivial. Who cares? They're both great, right? But the question that I want us to answer today, it is more than just trivial how you answer that question. And the question that I want us to answer today is, who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? And understand that just making, just asking that question, for many of us, it makes people feel uncomfortable. It's almost like they feel, well, that's a subjective question. It's based on what you think Jesus is or who you think Jesus is. They would, they would feel more comfortable if instead of just saying, who is Jesus Christ, why don't you just say, in your opinion, or who do you think that Jesus is? But friends, let me just cut to the chase. Is it okay if we just get right down to it? Your opinion of who you think Jesus is, it's not going to change Jesus one bit. What you think about Jesus or who you want him to be or who you want him to fit into, it is not going to change who Jesus is. God's word clearly tells us who Jesus Christ is. Let me remind you quickly of what God's word, who it says that Jesus is. Jesus is, and there's a scripture references there, but you can write these down if you'd like. Jesus is God. He is our great God. He is the mighty God. He is I am. Jesus is the first and the last, the Lord of lords, the alpha and the omega. Jesus is one in essence with the Father. He exists in the form of God. He is the exact representation of God's nature. He is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. He is the fullness of God that dwells in him. He is the one who forgives sin. Amen? Amen. He raises the dead. He receives the worship reserved for God alone. You know who Jesus Christ is? Scripture makes it as clear as can be. Jesus is God, period. Now, where your view does come into account is this. What are you going to do with Jesus? How you answer that one question of, here's who Jesus is. Whether you believe it or not, this is the truth because we know that God's word is true. So Jesus is God. The question that we've got to answer that has eternal implication is, what am I going to do with this Jesus that we read about in God's word? Here's the problem that I found today in sharing the gospel and in trying to teach people about who Jesus is from God's word. And that is that many of us, we don't have a proper view of Jesus. We, we've taken this Jesus and we've tried to, to give him a makeover. We've tried to make sure that Jesus fits in this little box that we've created. We want to make sure that he's culturally relevant. We want to make sure that he's acceptable and that he doesn't offend anyone. It's almost as like we, we think that Jesus has evolved into 2019. 
And the Jesus that many churches are teaching, the many people, many ways that we think of Jesus, sadly, it doesn't look anything like the Jesus that we read about in the New Testament. In fact, this morning, we're going to look at an instance in John chapter 2, if you have your Bible. It's an instance in which Jesus acts and he responds in such a way that people try to soften or explain away what really happens in this scene. In many ways, what Jesus does in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, it doesn't fit the narrative of this accepting, loving 2019 Jesus that many churches and church leaders and Christians have tried to mold him into. So with that said, let's jump into John chapter 2. And again, we're going to begin with verse 13. The first two verses, John says this, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and when Jesus went up to Jerusalem, In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers were sitting there. Now, what we know is that the Jewish law required that all Jewish males, that they would travel to Jerusalem for three different festivals. They were supposed to go for the Passover, for Pentecost, and the festival of Tabernacle. Now, there was a a, a kind of a caveat in that law, if you can, that said if you lived outside of a 20-mile area, a 20-mile range of Jerusalem, you weren't required to actually go and visit Jerusalem. But many of the people were God-fearing people just like Jesus, and even though they lived outside of that 20-mile radius, they too would take the time and they would travel to Jerusalem to be at the temple during this time of celebrating. So uh, I try to picture this scene here. John's writing, I believe, in a chronological order at this point, to where we know that just a few days ago, he had called these five disciples who begin following. He calls two, remember they go get their friends, and they begin following Jesus. They had just witnessed the first sign of Jesus at this wedding in Cana of Galilee, where Jesus turns the water into wine. And now they're walking with Jesus on this journey that would take several days to get to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Imagine what their, their, their sense of excitement must have been. How they must have been just a sense of anticipation. I wonder, what's he going to do next? We just saw this sign. Now we're going to be with Jesus as he celebrates Passover with his people. Now Passover, think of it for the Jewish people. It's like our Christmas. There was a season of joy, a season of anticipation as they reflected on what Passover represented, the first Passover. Remember that story in the book of Exodus? When God killed all of the firstborn through the death angel from all the Egyptians, but he passed over who? The Israelites, because they had the blood of the lamb that was spread on the doorpost of their doors. And so he passed over. And so every year they would celebrate, they would remember God's provision, God's blessing during this time of Passover. So that's where they're going to celebrate. You say, now what's going on? Why are they selling these animals outside the temple? Well, the sale of animals, it began really as a service to those that had traveled long distances, and it would have been difficult to to carry or bring an animal with them. I have a a three- and a five-year-old. It's hard to bring a three-year-old and a five-year-old. I can't imagine bringing a lamb with me, okay? So so think about that. Okay, You're traveling 20 miles or further. It would be a lot more convenient instead of carrying that lamb around your neck or dragging it, whatever you had, if you can just say, okay, when I get to the temple, there'll be someone selling the animals. I'll buy the animal there. And so what we're going to see, though, is that that what happened there was the temple and the sacrifices, they all were there for a purpose. 
and the purpose was the temple and the sacrifice, they pointed to the one true and ultimate sacrifice, who was what? Jesus, who was the ultimate Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This Jesus that in John chapter 1 that we saw that, that, that John the Baptist was pointing people that there is one who is greater than me. I can't even, I'm not even worthy of untying his sandals. This is the Jesus and the temple and the sacrifices. It points to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. But as Jesus and his disciples, as they arrived at the temple, they're appalled at what they see. They can't, they can't understand the scene of what they witness. Now, the money changers, they were there because originally uh, it was true that the only way that you could provide a, a, an offering, a monetary offering, in the temple was through Jewish currency. So they said their job was really out of necessity. We're here, so if you haven't already transferred your money, that you can come to us and that we will transfer your money, whatever kind of currency you have, so that you can then give a Jewish offering inside the temple. Now, for many of these money changers, they were charging as much as two hours of a working man's wage to simply charge or change out a half shekel. So let me, let me help you understand the inflation that they were, were offering here. To put that into context, if a man came to the temple with a two-shekel piece, that would have been a normal offering, then he would have had to pay an entire day's wages just to transfer, just to change out his money for that two-shekel piece. So this was big business for those that were changing out money at the temple. And what made it worse, you got to understand this, what made it so bad was Annas, who was the high priest, he was behind the whole thing. This was a racketing profit that they were making all this money outside of God's temple when they were coming to make the most holy of all days, the day of Passover. The changing out of money, the selling of animals at this highly inflated prices at the outside of the courts, which by the way, would have been the court of Gentiles before you could even get inside of the court. It, they had turned God's temple into a market. They had turned it into a circus. It was no way what it had intended. The intended purpose was as you got to the outer courts, it was a place of welcome, a place of worship, a place to prepare your hearts as you made that offering, as you brought that sacrifice before the Lord. This was now the exact opposite of the intent and the purpose of God's temple. And yet we saw this was true, not just in those who were not following the Lord, but this was true even in the high priest who knew God's word and yet their own selfish gain took priority. And that led to Jesus' response that we read in verses 15 through 17. How does Jesus respond? And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written back in the Old Testament now. Zeal for your house will consume me. See, church family, pure worship has always been important to God. Jack, when he preached a few weeks ago, he talked about that God is a jealous God, that he alone deserves the worship. He alone deserves the attention and our praise. And Jesus knew this. He knew that God was the only one deserving of the attention. So he takes swift action. And it says that he kneels down and he begins to knot together some cords and he 
makes a whip. And what does he do? He drives out the money changers. He drives out those selling the animals. He drives out even the crowds. What we see here is that Jesus, he wouldn't tolerate any mockery of worship. Friends, let me tell you, neither should we. May we never come before the Lord in a flippant heart. Oh, I'll give the Lord an hour, but I sure hope we get out in time because I've got, I got better things to do. No, may we never accept or make a mockery of worship. So Jesus, what does he do? He turns over the table. He, he gets mad. He drives them all out. Let's not water this passage down, by the way. Jesus was angry. A lot of people will say, well, let's just try to explain this way. It probably wasn't as bad as what we're thinking. Come on now. We say that as Christians and as Baptists that we believe every word of God's word is true. If we believe that God's word is true, I can't read this any other way other than the fact that Jesus was angry, right? The bigger question isn't trying to explain away his actions. The bigger question is, why is it that Jesus' reaction surprises us? What is it about what Jesus does here that, that we feel like we've got to defend Jesus? We feel like we've got to explain it away that it really didn't happen as we read it. I think it's because the Jesus that we know, the Jesus that we teach, it doesn't fit the narrative, does it? This isn't the Jesus that we like to talk about. Jesus that, that we like to talk about, I, I say he's almost like he's a 1960s hippie Jesus. All he talks about is free love and peace, and there, there's no confrontation. We emphasize Jesus talking about love and charity towards all. But be careful. Because we tend to stray away from the blatant passages where Jesus strongly warns us about sin, where he strongly warns us about the possible damnation of our souls. This gentle Jesus, this meek and mild Jesus, it's a concept that's been instilled in our minds almost since the fact when we were children. But I'm afraid if that's the only view that we have of Jesus, this Jesus is not the Jesus we read about in the Gospels. Hear me on this. Yes, Jesus is meek. Yes, Jesus is mild. Yes, he invites us to come. Yes, he invites us to give our burdens to him and that he will carry our load. But let us not forget that Jesus is almighty, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is all-powerful, and that Jesus calls out sin and he hates sin. By the way, let's not forget this gentle Savior that we, we sometimes have in our mind. He also had this to say to the Pharisees one day when they were at the temple. By the way, if you want to know what group we probably best relate to, it's probably the Pharisees in Scripture. Having head knowledge, but hearts not being changed. Listen to what Jesus said to the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Not very gentle or mild words, are they? That's why I, I grow angry almost when I hear people just flippantly refer to God, oh, there's the big man upstairs. May we never forget who he is. My friends, in an attempt to make Jesus appealing to others, my fear is that we've stripped him away of being 100% God. Yes, he is appealing. Yes, he is approachable. But let's not forget that he still is God in the flesh. So this response that Jesus has it was a calculated response. This isn't Jesus flying off the handle in some fit of rage. No, he, here's what I want you to remember about Jesus. 
Jesus, in the more perfect way than it's ever been demonstrated, he wedded together two things. He wedded together truth with love. We love talking about Jesus being full of love, but let's not forget that he also spoke truth. And if his word says something, even if it's offensive, even if it goes against culture, even if we don't like it, it's true because he is the ultimate and he is the absolute truth, and yet he spoke it in love. See, genuine love, it is, it's compatible with anger. In fact, Sometimes love, it, it comes out or it's, it's demonstrated by anger, isn't it? Let me give you an example. I can say that I love Lindsay, my wife, all day long. I can use all the words. I can tell all the people, I love my wife. She's so wonderful. I would do anything for her. But if we're out to dinner tomorrow night and someone comes and attacks her, I'm not going to sit back and say, oh, I love you so much, but I, man, I'm just so sorry for that. That wouldn't be love, would it? No, my love for her would be demonstrated by my anger that I am going to turn against that person. That is because of my love, I am going to respond. See where I'm going here? Jesus' love for his father, that is what fuels his anger at those who were corrupting it. It was a righteous anger that he was so upset that they were taking something that was holy and they were turning it and moving it in the wrong direction. Coaches often talk about the difference in passion and emotion. Emotion gets us in trouble sometimes. If we're not careful, we can be ruled by our emotions, that we act out of how we feel, and our feelings overrule what our brains tell us to do, and that causes us to act in unwise and sometimes foolish ways. You don't believe that? Go to a Little League baseball game, right? You'll see emotional people. Coach Harp, you've never seen that before, have you? You see people that lose their ever-loving minds over a call that's made when your kid's five years old. Give me a break. You see it through the most famous example that I know of is a guy by the name of Bobby Knight. Bobby Knight, remember he coached Indiana University basketball. Remember his famous scene, what he do with that chair? And he throws it across the court. He was full of emotion and it caused him to act foolishly. However, passion, on the other hand, it's still action. It's still saying that I've got this, this, this action inside of my heart, but it says that we're not going to allow our, our feelings to overrule our brains. That's where we want to live. We want to be passionate people. Not dead, not apathetic, not I don't care, but that we are passionate, that we act out of our emotions, but we act, we don't allow those actions to overrule our brain. That's where Jesus is in the scene. Jesus is passionate his emotions aren't getting the best of him. Instead, we see that he's communicating with great emotion here. There's two reasons why I think that Jesus is responding passionately. Now, there are probably a lot more than two reasons, but these are the two that I, I gathered as I was reading and studying this passage. The first reason that I think Jesus responds passionately is because, now, I already said this, they were making a mockery of worship. And he knew that was not what was supposed to happen in the temple. The second reason is that they were taking advantage of the poor. They were taking advantage of the poor because the poor, they couldn't afford to bring an offering. 
They couldn't afford to buy an offering. They couldn't afford to change out their money. And this drove Jesus crazy because the temple was to be for all people. And the question they have for us is, do those two things, do they burden us today too? If it burdened Jesus, does it burden us? Are we convicted of the times that we make a mockery of worship? What does that mean? Friends, we make a mockery of worship when we neglect our time daily with God. We've got more important things to do. We make a mockery of worship when we come into worship, when we come into this place on Sunday mornings expecting to be entertained. I hope you got some good music for me. Hope you got a good joke and a good sermon. No, 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 that's not the purpose of worship. We make a mockery of worship when we forget the sacrifice that was paid so that we might enjoy this relationship. That it's not because of anything we've done. It's not because of our worth, not because of where we were born, but it's all because of the sacrifice that Jesus made. Let us not forget the fact that the sacrifice was made so that we might have this relationship with God. In two Sundays, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We make a mockery of worship if we ever take the Lord's Supper in a flippant manner, just get through the routine and we forget about the symbolism that's there. Not only this, sure, I hope that our hearts are burdened when we make a mockery of worship, but what about this? Are are, our hearts burdened for the poor? When we see a need that's around us, one that we can make an impact, our hearts moved into action. Do we stand up for those who experience injustice every day? Do we have a heart for those that the world is against and they have been forgotten by the rest of the world? Do do we as Christians say you are loved and we are here to lend a helping hand and to be the grace and the hands and the feet and the eyes of Jesus? These are questions for us to ponder. It bothered Jesus so much that he was moved into action. I think it should bother us as well. Let's see how the Jews respond in closing here. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it's only taken, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Friends, what we see here is the Jews, their, their question represents, they weren't looking for information. They were wanting to do what? They were wanting to challenge his authority. That's why they demand a sign, and when they demand a sign, it's revealing their hearts. It's revealing their intentions. See, they knew full well that they were being greedy. There was no denying it. They knew that this was not what God had intended to occur in his temple. But they refused to admit their wrongdoing. They didn't get it, did they? They didn't get it when they said, no, tell me this. So Jesus, you're telling me that you're going to destroy this temple and raise it up in three days. This temple that has taken us 46 years to build. And by the way, we're not even finished with it. And John later tells us that, hey, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about his, his body being the temple. 
His body being the temple, that would be the sign that he was going to give. And to be fair a little bit to the leaders back in that day, even the disciples didn't fully get it, did they? Not until after it occurred did they finally, it's like that light bulb moment, it clicks. See, friends, the temple would be destroyed. It would occur on Good Friday, Jesus' crucifixion. The temple would rise again, and that occurred three days later at Jesus' resurrection. In fact, the temple would ascend, and that occurred at Jesus' ascension. Every promise that Jesus made here, he fulfilled in his own body. Now, I hope that in looking at this passage, that this morning I've been able to give you a little bit of perspective. Each week as we dig into God's Word, I hope that we can give a little bit of background, that it fits in in the context of Scripture, that we say, okay, what was going on? And we saw, here's what Jesus said. Maybe even here's what Jesus meant to those that were there at the temple. But finally, I want to close today by saying, how do we apply this message to our own lives? But friends, you're going to have to answer that question for yourself today. You're going to have to answer this question. What is God calling me to do as a result of studying and understanding this passage? I'm going to give you two simple takeaways, but understand God may be drawing something else out from from your reading and from where you are in your own life that God's saying, man, this is what you need to do as a result of understanding this passage. Two things. One's going to be how what God is saying to us individually, and the other is a challenge for us corporately as a church family. The individual challenge is this. And that is that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have repented of your sins and you have trusted him as your savior, then you are now his temple. The body of Christ, the individual, you are his temple. So this week, my challenge is this. Ask him, what sin do you need Jesus to cleanse in your life? If Jesus were to look in your life and you are his temple, what is it that he would say, I need to cleanse this sin from his life? In another one of John's books, he writes these words. He says, if we confess our sins, thank goodness for this next phrase, he is faithful and just to do what? What's the next word? To say that word out loud. To forgive us of our sins and to what's that next word? Cleanse, there's that word again, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Aren't you thankful for a Savior who forgives? Aren't you thankful for a Savior who cleanses us from all unrighteousness? But it's a conditional phrase, isn't it? It doesn't just happen automatically. It happens if we confess our sins. So let me ask you, will you ask God to help you clean out the sin that he reveals to you? Whatever sin he says, this is what I want you to clean out. Will you ask him, God, will you give me the ability to to clean it out? Will you invite him to come and and to to remove and sweep out that lack of desire that you have to to not worship him or to not worship him fully without reservation? Will you ask him to forgive you for not having a heart for the poor? Will you ask him to forgive you for not having a heart for the oppressed or for those that are living separated from God that will spend an eternity separated from him if they do not trust in him? What about corporately? As a church family, hear my heart on this. The way we worship reveals what we think about God. Let me say that again. The way that we worship reveals what we think about God. Now understand, I'm not talking about a style. 
I'm not talking about style of music or instrument. I'm not saying if you're demonstrative in worship. I'm talking about your heart. If we have a genuine reverence for God, if we truly recognize him for who he is, we will, we will not hold back in our singing and worship. If we have a reverence for God, we won't hold back in our prayers that we boldly come before him. If we have a reverence for who he is, we won't hold back in the prayers that we pray. We won't hold back in the scriptures that we read. We won't hold back in the offerings that we bring him. We will worship with all that we have. Why? Because we recognize who he is and we recognize how infinitely valuable and how infinitely worthy that he is. Church family, I can't overemphasize the importance of our time together each and every Sunday as we come together to corporately worship and to call out to him and give him the worthy and the honor and the praise that he alone is worthy of. Corporate worship is a joy. Corporate worship is a privilege that we can come together and worship him together in spirit and in truth. Let's not take for granted the incredible privilege that we have been given because of the grace and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we're going to have, as we have every single Sunday, a time of invitation. And if you have a public decision to come forward and say, I want to join this church or I'm trusting Christ as my Savior, I'll be down front. But we're going to end a little differently because I know, I know how this works. As soon as we start saying, you're putting your things up, you're putting your stuff in your purse, and, and hey, we're starting to think about lunch, we're going to end with worship today. This isn't just the song to, to get ready to leave. We're going to continue in worship and say, God, because of who you are, because we recognize who you are, we want to end by giving you all the honor and the glory. So let's pray together and we'll continue in worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for his obedience to endure the cross, the cross for which he most certainly did not deserve, but he willingly bore our sin, our sorrows, our suffering upon his shoulders so that we might be called a son, a daughter a child of yours, what a privilege it is to be in this relationship with you. Lord, forgive us for the times that we have made a mockery of worship, for the times that we have come into this place, Lord, just waiting for it to be over, just to check the box where our hearts weren't in the right place. I pray that you would continue to work in our hearts and work into our lives that when we come before you, whether it's in our prayer closets, whether it's in the car with our kids, whether it's when we're in work, whether it's when we're here together with our church family, that we will worship you fully and without reservations because we recognize who you are and how worthy you are of our praise. Lord, thank you for the cross. Lord, I pray that you, even now, would return to us the joy of our salvation, that we would leave this place filled with awe and wonder of who you are. Lord, if there's anyone here today that hasn't trusted you as Lord and Savior, I pray that today they confess their sins, that today they would repent and they would find your son waiting, longing, 
to forgive them of their sins and to welcome them into your family. We pray all of this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen.